Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find, for the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, That evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Right from the start, I have to ask you a question. And I want you to mull it over instead of shouting it out. Do you think that people are basically good Or basically evil. In Romans chapter 7. Paul basically says. I need to to make a confession. I, I have a confession to make. I'm a slave to sin. I'm under sin's influence. I'm subject to sin. I'm capable of sinning. I'm guilty of sinning. I can't bring myself to a place of personal acceptance before God apart from Christ and apart from the gospel. I keep on sinning. At least the truth is I cannot keep from sinning. At least not perfectly. I can't erase sin's presence. At least not completely. I can't cast out sin from my life. At least not totally. I can't get rid of sin. At least not permanently. Now you'll remember in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 22, there was that interesting story where Jesus is, is, is approached by what Matthew describes as a rich young ruler. And he has a penetrating question for Jesus. He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I shall inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. But one, that is God. And people have often asked me, well, what's going on? Is Jesus saying that he's not good? 
Or is Jesus saying that he is God? Many people are desperate to affirm their basic goodness. Even in the midst of overwhelming evidence that you are not good. I once read perhaps one of the most startling statistics I have ever seen in my life. A group of California prisoners in Folsom Prison were asked this one simple question. Do you think you're basically a good person? 100% answered yes. Even when they were committing a crime. I once heard someone say a man is as good as he has to be. And a woman as good as she dares to be. Someone else said, there's so much good in the worst of us, and there's so much bad in the best of us, it hardly makes sense for any of us to talk about the rest of us. But Paul will do exactly that. Paul will speak about himself in Romans chapter 7. Remember, he's always spoken of two husbands, one in illustration and one in application. When a woman is married to a man, she's bound to that man by law. And if she unlawfully leaves her husband and marries another, the law pronounces guilt and finds that that woman is an adulteress. Paul has used the illustration, if the former husband dies, she's free from that law. Paul describes the believer as having died to the law and is now free to pursue a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ as the new husband. Paul speaks of two discoveries, that the law is spiritual, but that the believer is carnal, sold under sin, because the law reveals sin in verse 7, energizes sin in verse 8, inflames our human nature. And so he says that the law deceives us and then kills us in verses 9, 10, and 11. The law reveals the sinfulness of sin. Not just the outward things that we do, but the inward attitude, the real condition that's inside of our heart. Can the believer make himself or herself holy by the law? Paul argues our sinful nature is so sinful that it can't be changed and it won't be controlled by the law. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, It's a wonderful day in the life of the Christian when he or she discovers that the old nature knows no law and the new nature needs no law. Of course, we know that we need the law of Christ. Paul didn't believe that he was basically a good person. Paul's debate doesn't focus on essential goodness or badness. Paul's debate falls on whether you are fallen and sinful and whether or not goodness even exists at all. Scholars argue, at least in the life of the the human being, scholars argue about who is Paul talking about in the passage. Does Paul have the non-Christian in view? 
The early Greek church fathers thought Paul was describing the unregenerate Pharisee under the law. The second view is that this is the normal Christian. This was the view of Augustine and Luther and Calvin. The third view is that this is the carnal Christian who is born again, but who is somehow manipulated and controlled by sin in chapter 5, in chapter 6, in chapter 7. And so that sin is understood as some alien power, some formidable circumstance inside of human beings that creates this problem. I believe that Paul is not so much describing his carnality, but rather reality of what it means to be a Christian. Remember, Paul has been describing the great theme of the book. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, remember what he said, that the just, those who are justified, will live by faith. And if we're saved by faith, And if we can't be saved apart from faith, if we can't be saved apart from grace, if we can't be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, how are we going to convince ourselves? And how are we going to convince others that we need a savior? And so, Paul demonstrates, using himself as an example, In verse 14, the law can't change you. Why? Here's Paul's argument. It didn't change me. The law can't make you good. Why? Paul says, it didn't make me good. The law can't set you free in verses 21 through 25. Why? Paul says, it didn't set me free. So who is Paul describing? Paul's describing the person who still believes that you can live the Christian life and obey God in your own strength, and your own power, with your own ability. And Paul isn't trying to duck responsibility for his bad behavior. Paul is reminding the Romans and us that there was a time when sin obtained a foothold in his life, but he never lost sight of Jesus. And by the way, is that your experience? That every once in a while you'll look up and you'll look away and you're not looking at Jesus. You're not looking full in his wonderful face. You're not knowing, loving, walking, preserving what it means to know and love the Lord Jesus. And you walk away or you look away even for a brief moment. You lose sight of Jesus and you become enslaved to sin again. You see, the truth is, You can take your eyes off Jesus and you can place them firmly and you can look steadfastly into the rules instead of the ruler. And so in verse 14, look what it says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. Paul defines the problem for every struggling Christian, he comes right out and he says it. I want to be a good person, but I'm not. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. Not with the rules, but with me. 
The reason why the law can't change me into a good person is because I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin. What does, that, what does it mean? Look what he says. For we know that the law is spiritual. In what way is the law spiritual? It means that it deals with the inner you, the invisible you. In other words, the reason why the law is spiritual is it isn't making you conform on the outside, but what the law invites you to do is to be different on the inside. It means that it deals with the inside. Its focus is on the inner person and not on the outer person. And so what is the law? Remember, it's God's revelation of what is right and what is wrong. Warren Wiersbe again describes the character of the law in four words. He says it is holy and just and good and spiritual. The law is holy and just because it comes from a holy God who is just. And now all of a sudden we have an understanding, a peek into the inside of the passage of scripture in John 1, 9 where it says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say he is just simply faithful. But that he is just. I I need you to understand what that means. Because for the person who says. I don't deserve God's grace. And I don't deserve God's mercy. I deserve God's justice. Guess what? His forgiveness and salvation. Puts you on the other side of justice. So that even when you say. Lord please forgive me. I want you to think this through. Justice is now on your side. You see, when you've broken the law, justice can either be against you or it can be with you. The law is good because it reveals God's character and our character. And the law helps you to see that you need a savior. And so the law is spiritual in nature. In what way is it spiritual? Because it's spiritual in its origin. The law didn't come from human beings. The law came from God. It's the revelation of God. The law has its origin in heaven and in the mind of God and in the heart of God and in the will of God. And then it is communicated by the Holy Spirit. The law is an expression of the will of God. And then it's an expression of the nature of God. And that's why it reveals two things that's so important. The mind of God. And the character of God. The law is spiritual in its purposes. Remember the law is holy. The law is just. The law is righteous. It's fair. It's impartial. It treats everyone exactly as they should be treated. It reveals how we're to conduct ourselves. Amongst ourselves. And so Paul confesses. That he's carnal. That he's not spiritual. That he's carnal. He's sold under sin. That we are carnal in our nature. And by the way, the word carnal means fleshly. It's the Greek word sarkinos or sarkinos. Sarks has to do with your flesh. Is Paul describing physical muscle, bone and marrow, sinew and synapse, nerve and nostrils? No, that's not what he's talking about. Your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Everything that you are. 
It is your mind. It is your heart. It is your emotion. It is the sum and the substance of everything, everything, everything that you are apart from Christ. Even the good things, even the things you like about yourself, even the things when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you go, I love my hair. Or my eyes. Or I love this. Or I love that about myself. Even the good things that you think about yourself. In Romans chapter 8 verse 7. If you just turn the chapter real quick. Paul writes for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never obeyed God's laws. And it never will he says in chapter 8 verse 7. So what is Paul's explanation for the flesh being hostile to God and disobedient? He says well the law is spiritual and I'm not. The law is holy in its origin. In Proverbs 5.22, the writer of Proverbs said, his own iniquities will entrap the, the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. There's something about sin that finds you and traps you. When Moses received the law from God in the book of Exodus, the emphasis was on what the people did. But when Moses restated the law in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses emphasized the quality of the law and how it's supposed to relate to the human condition and the human heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Moses said, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? He requires you to fear him, to live according to his will, to love him, and to worship him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. He writes in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 10, And to obey the Lord's commands and the laws that I'm giving you today for your own good. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought Wearsby just said that the old nature knows no law and the new nature needs no law. Well, there is a law that the new nature respects. And that is the law of God. And the law of Christ. The new nature inside of you says, I want to do what's God's will and I want to do what's, what God says. The law can't transform the old nature. It can only reveal how sinful the old nature really is. For the believer who tries to live under the law will only activate the old nature and he won't eradicate it. Again, Wiersbe says, the reason the believer can't make himself holy by means of the law is not because God's law is not holy or good, but because our nature is so sinful that it can't be changed or controlled. By the law. So if obeying the rules won't make me holy, what will? If obeying the rules won't make me good, what will? If obeying the rules won't make me accepted before God, what will? In verse 15, look what Paul writes that that the law. Can the law empower you to be a good person? He says in verse 15, For what I'm doing, I don't understand. 
For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. Let me help you. Listen to Paul's struggle in a different translation. This is in the New Living Translation. Listen carefully. Verse 15. I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what's right. And then I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 16. I know perfectly well that what what I'm doing is wrong and my bad conscience shows that I agree that the law is good, but I can't help myself because it's sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. What, Paul? You have some sort of evil twin? Listen carefully. I know that I'm rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. But if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. The sin within me is doing it. It seems to be a fact of life. That when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I know what you're thinking. I could have written that. That sounds exactly like me. I want to do what's right, and then I do what's wrong, and I know that it's wrong. I know that it's wrong, and then I purpose in my heart, I'm going to do what's right. Do you know what it's like? Imagine that you could get involved in a cruel experiment where you could take the DNA of a spider and you could splice it with the genes of a butterfly and you create a creature that isn't a complete spider and it isn't a complete butterfly, but somehow you mold and meld the two natures together and you create one creature that is both butterfly and spider. It is both but neither and it becomes both. And imagine you have a nature inside of you that wants to fly free and wants to be beautiful and wants to wake up with the sun and go from flower to flower, but you find yourself craving the dark shadows. You find yourself craving death. And you find yourself making webs. And you find yourself catching things. And then you find yourself sucking them dry. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Is Paul a genuine believer? Guess what? If he's not a genuine believer, neither are you. Does Paul not want to sin? Yes. Does he continue to sin? Yes. Is it because he's failed to exercise his will? No, Paul's one of the most willful people we've ever met. 
Do you think it's because Paul has taken his eyes off Jesus? He refuses to focus on Jesus. He refuses to walk with Jesus. Does that make sense to you when you read what he says? When he says, I purpose to know nothing among you except for Christ and, and him crucified. When he says elsewhere in Galatians that the life that he lives, he now lives by the power of Jesus. That he, that he purposed to know nothing except for Jesus. To live his life as Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead. Is Paul neglectful of God's will? Is Paul undisciplined and undeserving? That doesn't sound like the Paul we know when we read Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Paul reveals something, that there's something inside of him. Three times Paul writes, I'm carnal, sold under sin in verse 14. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, verse 18. But sin that dwells in me, verse 20. The old nature remains. The old nature asserts itself. Paul writes, That the Holy Spirit also dwells with us. And and we're going to see that in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul will explain how the Holy Spirit of God helps us and enables us and empowers us to live in victory. Well, does this mean that, that the Christian is some sort of schizoid? Yeah, in a way it does. Paul is revealing a struggle. Self is the ultimate four-letter word for the Christian. Do you want to know the most obnoxious, most disgusting, most problematic word in the Christian vocabulary? S-E-L-F. I don't understand myself, Paul says. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I don't understand myself. Aren't you glad that's in the Bible? Paul says, I can't understand myself and I can't help myself. So Paul's revealing two principles in verses 15 through 25. The principle of the law of sin and death and the principle of the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And again, I'm just going to take you for a little peek at the top of the mountain in chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Does the born-again, blood-bought Christian Have one nature or two natures. Paul says that when you become a Christian, the old you doesn't die, but a new you is made alive. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, remember Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, does that also mean that that salvation brings with it the eradication of the old nature? No. Paul repeats... Sin dwells in him. Paul has discovered several things. The law is spiritual and he is carnal. But I need you to understand 
part of the meaning of that. Can you imagine how humiliating it is to be a proud rabbi, to be a Jewish scholar, to be a keeper and an instructor of the law, and to discover your very nature is still unspiritual, and you still don't obey the law of God. And and now all of a sudden, I think you do understand. You do understand because you go, well, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. Wait a minute, I've received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Wait a minute, I read my Bible. Wait a minute, I go to church. Wait a minute, I, I stuff shoe boxes. I go to Denver Rescue Mission. I want to do good things. I want to do right things. I want to do helpful things. Then why is it that I continue to do harmful things? Paul notes that it isn't by not submitting to the outward laws that we grow in holiness or we become accepted. It's by surrendering to the indwelling Holy Spirit. This law or principle is going to be elaborated in chapter 8. Can you, you can see why. You can go, get to chapter 8. Get to chapter 8. Oh, we're going to get there soon. Look what it says in verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Can the law set you free from sin in order to be a good person? Again, the believer has an old nature that wants to keep him in bondage. I'll get free from this old... Life and these old sins, the Christian says to himself or or herself, I determine right here and right now, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to say this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Paul will later write in other places, he'll, he'll say, are you a liar? Stop lying and start telling the truth. Are you a thief? Stop stealing and start working. What is it that you're struggling with? Impurity? Then purpose that you're going to live a a pure life. Why? Paul says he tried to overcome his old nature with the law and the law didn't deliver him from his old nature. And so when you move under the law, you're only making the old nature stronger because the strength of sin is the law. And if you don't believe me, read Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. I'll just read it. I'll just turn there because some of you might go, Is that really in the Bible? Well, Paul writes, The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin. The thing that empowers sin is the law. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In other words, here's what Paul says. I'm born again. I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's an inward, renewed human being inside of me. One who's been made new by the lordship of Jesus Christ. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He describes a duel, a battle, a civil war taking place inside of him. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Paul confesses that he's carnal, sold under sin in verses 14 through 17. Paul confesses that he's void, empty of any personal goodness in verses 18 through 20. Paul confesses that there are two forces or principles at work inside of him in verses 21 through 23. Paul confesses that he's a wretch. And that he's still a man in need of a savior. That he needs a deliverer. And in verse 25, he says that Jesus is that deliverer. Several Bible scholars believe that Paul is drawing an analogy here from certain extreme practices of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. I'm going to tell you what I think that the illustration is, and then I'm going to give you a modern illustration. We're all familiar with the pain of crucifixion. When certain heinous crimes were committed... You were crucified. But the Romans had another terrifying way of putting you to death. Especially if you were guilty of a capital crime of the most heinous sort. And let me give you an idea of what they had in mind. If you murdered an innocent child. If you murdered a dignitary. If you murdered a child or if you murdered a dignitary in the Roman culture, sometimes what they would do is they would take the dead body of the victim and then they would strap one hand and then the other hand to the culprit. The dead person's body was roped to their body, face to face, hand to hand, body to body, foot to foot. They would literally tie the corpse to the person who committed the crime. And then they would allow the corpse to rot, to decay. A day would go by, and another day would go by. And the corpse would bloat and distend. And then it would burst. The flesh would rot and the stench would become unbearable. And the rotting corpse of your victim would become the instrument of your own execution. Some people believe that that's exactly what Paul has in mind. When he says, oh, wretched man that I am. I want to talk to you a little bit about that term, wretched. You see, you probably all sang the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. The word wretch was a word in the Greek language that described a person who's exhausted, who's exhausted after fighting a battle. But it is more than just a picture of a person who's exhausted after fighting a battle. The picture is of a soldier who has gone to war. And if you've ever been in a brutal fight, when I was a kid, when, when I was a little kid, I, I used to fight a lot. And you, sometimes you would fight, and it, would, it was fist fights. And I remember hitting a kid so much and so often that my hands literally went numb. The picture that I want to share with you is maybe a movie that some of you have seen. Did any of you ever actually see the first 
movie of Rocky with Sylvester Stallone where he has to fight this man and he has to go through 15 rounds. And as you go through the rounds, there is Rocky. You see the transformation taking place in the battle. His ribs are cracked. His eyes are almost swollen to the point where his eyes are getting ready to close. And he goes back into his corner in the 14th round, in the 15th round, and he says to the guy in the corner, he goes, Mickey, I want you to cut me. Rocky, I can't do that. It might cause permanent damage. Mick, I need you to cut me. And you remember, if you ever saw the movie, he cuts the upper portion of his, of his eyes in order to let the blood literally flow out because he has so many blood blisters from having been beaten nearly to death. That's the picture. That's the picture that Paul wants to give you of a person who has gone round after round after round. Not just in a fist fight that's going to result in a loss or a win, but in a brutal battle where someone will live and someone will die. And so when Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. How will I ever escape this battle? How will I ever get away from this conflict? He says, who will deliver me? Note what it says. Not what will deliver me. Not what church will deliver me. Or Bible passage will deliver me. Or discipline will, will, spiritual discipline that will deliver me. He's saying, who, who will deliver me? And in verse 25, it says, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He says, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just as eternal life is through Jesus, so escape from the flesh is through Jesus on the cross. Jesus will deal with the battle. Imagine now, instead of going in round after round, having to fight the battle, going in to a circumstance that you know you can never win, Paul pushes Jesus into the ring. And says, will you fight for me? Will you fight? And now the battle is being waged. And the blows are being landed. And the demands of the law, the scrutiny of the law, the perfection of the law, the holiness of the law, the spiritualness of the law. And Jesus will fulfill it. And he, he fulfills it in every way, every time, every circumstance. He fulfills it. But guess what? Even if you perfectly kept the law, if you only broke it one time, there would still be the punishment. And so after the battle is waged, Jesus will take upon himself... Your punishment, your sin, your crime, your sentence. So how does this become useful to you in the very real world in which you live? If you're dead to sin, you can't be expected to obey God in your own strength. You won't obey him at all. It's going to need the strength of the Holy Spirit, the empowering presence of Jesus 
The Holy Spirit will enable you to fulfill the demands of God's holiness. And Christians can have the victory of chapter 6. Remember, no, yield, reckon. We're no longer chained to the rotting corpse of our old nature. Everything that we were and everything that we have done that used to be strapped to us, that looked at us eye to eye and nose to nose and hand to hand and foot to foot, we've been set free. Well, does this mean we don't have to produce fruit for God? No, we will produce fruit for God. The truth is, if you try to produce fruit for God in your own circumstance, you're going to produce rotten fruit. But the pure and peaceable fruit of the Holy Spirit will come inside of you. And all of a sudden you will experience love and joy and peace. Christians stop here in chapter 7. They often stop here. And they become spiritual casualties or prisoners of war. They'll stop in chapter 7 and they'll go, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. I'm not good at being a Christian. I'm bad at it. Hey, I thought I could be a Christian. I thought I could go to church. I thought I could read my Bible. I thought I could be a good person. And I went to church and I took my Bible And I found myself thinking evil thoughts, having wicked imaginations. And every once in a while would look away from Jesus and then look towards the rules, taking my eyes off Jesus. We accepted the truths of Romans 7. That we're failures in ourselves, that the law is good, that we're carnal, But then we wouldn't let the Holy Spirit work God's love and God's will in our lives. In chapter 6, we're dead to sin. In chapter 7, we're dead to the law. But remember why we're dead to the law. So we can be alive to Jesus. So we can enjoy the blessed liberty of what it means to know and love Jesus. Ray Stedman has this to say, and I I just took it in its entirety. Look what he says. It's, It's so good. He says, quote, There are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is something a Christian goes through but once. Then he gets out of it and he moves into Romans 8, never to return to Romans 7 again. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through it again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience. Because sin has the power to deceive us and to cause us to trust ourselves even when we're not aware of what we're doing. The law is what will expose the evil force and drive us to the place of wretchedness so that we might in the devotion of the spirit cry out to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, this is your problem. Deal with it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So what are we going to discover in chapter 8? There's no condemnation for sin. 
There's no more control by sin. There's no more continuance in sin. We have a new Lord and the Holy Spirit controls our mind, our motives, and our members. With a new Lord comes a new life. What are we going to find out in chapter 8? How to put chapter 7 behind us. And we're going to find hope for our deepest hurts. And we're going to find pardon for what seems like it's unpardonable. We're going to find courage to face fatal addictions. We're going to find healing for deep abuses. We're going to learn about the healing power of forgiveness and how to end the empty obsessions that drive you further and further and further away from God. But you don't have to wait till next week. You can have assurance today by stop trusting your goodness. And start trusting Jesus' goodness. Remember what Paul said in this chapter? I don't understand. Here's you. I don't understand. I can't accept my own imperfections. Then guess what you'll do? You'll live a lie. You'll pretend that your imperfections are perfections. Well, there's no room for failure then there's no room for Christ. Don't you understand? Your failures become the very point where Jesus shows up and says, I'll I'll forgive you and I'll forgive you and I'll forgive you. I'll forgive that. Even that? Yes, even that. I want you to think of the most wicked thing that you've ever done right now. Yes, he'll forgive that. And you'll discover something. That like Paul, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And that Jesus is that savior. Doesn't it make you hungry for chapter 8? And by the way, when we get to the top of the mountain, we're going to pause. And we're going to take a good, long, hard look at all of the amazing things spiritually that you can see On top of that mountain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord what a wonderful privilege that we have. That even when we come to the end of the chapter. Paul says I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that with the mind I myself will serve the law of God. In other words I won't pretend even for a moment. That the law isn't what exactly you say it is. It is good. It is holy. It is righteous. It is just. But like a butterfly who has the deep DNA of a spider. I understand that the truth is I was born a sinner. And I live in a sinful world. And sin has taken its toll. And sometimes disobedience and wickedness will assert itself in circumstances that I don't welcome. 
But Lord, I'm so grateful for grace and I'm so grateful for mercy. I'm so grateful for love. And so, Lord, we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for that man, that woman, who lives in the darkness and the void and the disappointment. Lord, I pray that they would come to a place where they would turn their eyes away from the sin and the void and the disappointment and they would look full in your wonderful face. That they would cry out to you for forgiveness knowing that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just. That justice now is on our side and that we can with complete confidence know that Jesus wants to forgive us and love us and cleanse us and walk with us. Lord, I pray that the sinner would become a saint. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.